We're going to be in Acts chapter 4. Father, help me to say what is helpful and what is true and what is loving. Let it be useful to equip us and to encourage us to live a life worthy of the calling that we have from you. We submit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go through the book of Acts, if you're with us, we've been, we've been kind of walking through the book of Acts, and last week we took a little pause and a little tangent, went down a little side trail where uh, Robbie taught just uh, and spoke about the, the book of Second Peter, because Peter is a very prominent character right now, and so um, we're going to be doing that intermittently, and so that's what happened last week. If you missed it, if you did miss it, I would really encourage you um, to, to go back and, and listen to that. And we're gonna, you're going to hear that a lot from us. You'll hear it today of us encouraging you to go back um, and listen to different messages. And the big reason is because um, in a narrative passage, um, in a narrative book like the book of Acts, you'll see a lot of repetition. You'll see a lot of the similar patterns and similar things coming out. And so sometimes we'll choose to focus on one part of the story and we'll point to um, other sermons or other messages where we addressed a different part of the story, if that makes sense. So, um, so just, just keep that in mind. You can always go on our website um, at faithpestigo.com and you can search through all the archives there. Um, you can also uh, subscribe to the podcast or whatever. Um, this sounds like I'm doing like a YouTube promo, but it's not. I'm just like, just saying, if you would like to do that, that's how you can find those. And if you have trouble finding them, let us know and we'd be happy um, to help you. So, as we pick up the story back in Acts, remember that we have this group of people. We, we saw Pentecost happen. The Holy Spirit indwells these people. And then they form um, this community as thousands of people come to faith in Christ. And they form as the first church, as the early church. And we talked about what their lives looked like. And we, we talked about things about how people were just bewildered and perplexed by this, what they were seeing in these people. But even with the thousands of people that they have at this point, they are still kind of this just annoying little side group. And just imagine for the religious authorities of the day how frustrating it must have been to feel like they, they finally got rid of Jesus only to see his followers passionately continue on in this ministry. And what they are going to want to do now is now we'll start to see persecution come in because we'll start to see them saying, all right, well, we need to nip this in the bud. We need to thwart this right now while it's still small. They need to shut it down. And so, so far we have seen an unexpected power on display through Pentecost and healings. We have seen an unex unexpected lives lived out as the church lived as God's family. And today we're going to look at the unexpected people that God uses here. And these are ordinary people, and we can't ever forget that. 
It's so easy to, to think that these apostles, that there is something innate about them, but it is said over and over, and I could give you probably 10 passages right now off the top of my head that describes how ordinary they are. But throughout Scripture, God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So if you feel ordinary, if you wonder, how, how could God use me, well, then you're in the right spot today. Really, this part today in, in Acts chapter 4 is really part two of the story that started when Peter and John healed the lame beggar out in front of the temple. And then we talked, um, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And we see this pattern that we've mentioned where there's a miracle, and then that miracle serves as the platform from which they declare Jesus as king. And then, as we've talked about, some people scoff and mock and others seek and find. So they, they heal this man. And he tells the crowd, that, you know, don't praise us. What are you looking at us for? As if it's like our power. This man is healed in the name of Jesus Christ. And remember, he talks very directly about this Jesus that you crucified. And he calls them to repent. And that's where we pick it up. As he is calling them to repent. And in Acts 4, it says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So they get arrested. And it's late at night, so they spend the night in prison. And then they are brought before the council where they will give their defense. And we'll, we'll get to that later. But essentially what we see Peter doing is Peter will repeat essentially the same message that he preached at Pentecost and the same message he preached the day before. Jesus Christ crucified. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And this is the response. And this is the key passage that, through which I want to look at this story through. Now when they, the authorities, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So do you see the pattern here? Remember, miracle happens. The platform for them to declare the gospel. And they are perplexed. They are astonished. Now, what's interesting here is, why are they astonished here? It says they were astonished because they see this man healed, and they see the boldness as they have intimidated and brought Peter and John before them and expecting them to shake and tremble, and yet they respond in boldness. And they are amazed, and it says they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Now, think about this. This was their assessment after Peter and John spoke. Ouch. Right? 
I mean, imagine saying that. Would you, would you come up? I mean, well, some of you have said similar things to me. But if you did, like, came up to me, and, and if you said, like, okay, yeah, I went and went to Faith Church, and I heard that Jay guy preach, and what really amazes me is he is clearly nothing special and uneducated. Well, thanks, right? Like, it's not the first time I had heard that. Like, um, some of you don't know this. Robbie and I, years ago, we worked at a mega church. Like, you know, Matt, ten, um, like 20,000 people would come to this church on the weekend. And so we would have these big conferences. And for these big conferences, um, we would often have to create things. And so we were just starting out in ministry. So often my job was to create videos for this ministry. And so I would work all week long on these videos that nobody would pay attention to. And it was a very humbling experience. But then this big conference came up where thousands of youth ministers were going to come to this conference. And the, the lead youth pastor who goes and speaks around the world and like is, you know, all this stuff, he said, I, you did a video a couple months ago. I want to use that. I want to use that in the conference. And I was like, that's amazing. Like finally, we're like being recognized for the, like the work that I did. And so like, I, I looked at the video and I was like, well, I don't know if it's our best one, but like I was pretty happy with it. And I'd worked really hard on it. And so he wanted to use it. And he gets up there. And one of the things about that video was that we had, um, I, I had been charged with trying to get some students involved on the video team. And so I did, I got some video, got, this was the very beginning of trying to recruit students to do this. So the extent of the work that the students contributed to this video was unlocking the door to the school video room, okay? So just, just keep that in mind, all right? So that's what they contributed. Everything else was me. The idea, the, the editing, the, everything about it was me. And so I was pretty excited about that. He shows the video. And he used that video to, to make this point. Hey, it's really important that you get students to participate, even if the quality isn't very good. <laughs> and I sat there, I was like, oh, okay. I think that's probably how Peter and John are kind of feeling. Like, do you really have to point that out? Like, common and uneducated? Like, here, look at this great point, and look at what God can do with normal, dumb people. And that's, but that is so amazing. And these people, the authorities are looking at them being like, it would make sense. It would make sense if these were like the people that all the rabbis wanted. If what they were looking at before them is they're looking at different rabbis are watching these students, these, these, these people, and saying, well, gosh, yeah, I mean, I always knew Peter had it in him. I tried to get Peter to follow me, but he just wouldn't. He held out. He was the top of his class. No. These were people that no other rabbi wanted to follow them. And so what astonishes them is how can they stand before us and declare these extraordinary things as ordinary people. They've never seen such boldness like this. They are indwelled by a power that cannot be explained, living lives that cannot be explained as people who could not be explained. Unless there's one variable there that clicks and and strike some fear and concern, and we will see how that makes them respond. And that is this variable. They had been with Jesus. 
Now, maybe it's just because they recognized Peter and John from that time. That's very possible. Or maybe it's also because there's something eerily familiar about this whole scene. Something eerily familiar about the healings that they are doing. About the message that they're proclaiming. And about the way in which they're doing it. There's something extraordinary about them. And they could tell they had been with Jesus. So how could they tell? That's what I, I want to look at. I say, how, how could they tell that they had been with Jesus? And I want to point out that they could tell because they're doing the same things. They're doing the same works that Jesus did. They're saying the same things. They, they are using, they're speaking the same words that Jesus did. But also their demeanor. They're responding in the same way that Jesus did. So first, the works that they're doing reminded them of Jesus. This, this healing looked just like so many we see in the Gospels. Uh, what I want you to do is if you have a pen and, and paper right now, I want you to just write down Luke 13 and Luke 14. So remember, Acts was written by Luke. And so Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he's drawing these parallels. And so I would say go, go back and read those. But there's two accounts of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And there's so many others. But you can look at the healings of Jesus. And it is such a similar scene. They're walking along the road. There is someone who calls out for help. Someone that needs help. And so they respond to him. And they heal him. They say even something similar to what, um, to what Jesus would say. Like get up and walk. And then people are amazed at it. And what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with this healing is that Peter and John are just doing what they saw Jesus do. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that particularly, about the healing. I would encourage you, um, a few weeks ago, we talked about the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And we talked about the healing, uh, this actual healing in, in chapter 3, then two weeks ago. And I'd say go, go back and, and listen to those about like, these miraculous things that were happening and how it happened through these regular people. But here's what I want to say this morning. What I want to point out this morning is that if you do these works, we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and we talked about, remember, like we just talked about living a life that you can't explain outside of the power of Jesus Christ. And we talked about healing and all these miraculous things. But here's the point that I want to make from here is that if you do that, if you live that kind of life, if God does these kinds of things through you, you will disrupt the culture. And that is really annoying to the culture. I love that they choose that people were annoyed with them. That gives me great hope. Because that's usually one of the top ten words people might use to describe me. Sometimes for good reasons and sometimes for bad. And we're going to talk about that. But don't be surprised if these things happen. We kind of get this idea that if, if I do these things, if God does these amazing things, everyone will be so excited about it. Not so much. It says that they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. And what's great about this is Peter and John do not seem surprised about this at all. Why would they be? 
Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He also said, remember the word that I said to you, which implies that he's already said this to them. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Some will mock and scoff, and others will seek and find. He's been telling them this the whole time. If you do the works of Jesus, you will get the response that Jesus got. Because it's going to disrupt things. It's going to annoy people. There will be a price to pay. And I think that's really important here in this passage to say, look, we have to have that expectation. We cannot be surprised at the fiery trials that come upon us as though something strange were happening to us. That is always, like that, it's so common that that is at the root of so much of our panic is we're surprised. We should not be. There is a cost to living this life. Where did we get the idea that if we follow Jesus, everyone will think we're the best? Or that everything will go smoothly? Or that life should be fair? And I've noticed a lot that we, we understand that. Look, I, I get it. Like, we understand that for other parts of the world. But it feels really strange here. But it shouldn't. Why would we be surprised that the platform God builds for us to declare the gospel would be an easy platform with no cost, one full of health and wealth and prosperity? Because we don't get it from the Bible. We get it from our own ideas of how things should work. So you may ask, why do it? Well, it's... It's foolishness if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But if you see the kingdom as a treasure hidden in the field, then you'll say, because it's worth it. These ordinary people doing extraordinary things, they preach this message, and thousands believe. It's worth it. So those works of Jesus, it reminds them of of this Jesus, and the response is the same as what it was for Jesus. But they also have the words of Jesus. It's also eerily familiar what they're talking about. Repenting, the kingdom of God is at hand. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So they, this is an intimidation thing. Like everybody's coming forward, the whole family, everyone's in. We're all going to ask. And they expect Peter and John to stammer or stutter or back down in some way, to be sheepish, to be qualifying, to hedge their bets. And who could blame them? Think about this. The last time they saw a scene like this, Jesus ends up crucified. So in their minds, there may only be one way this ends. But instead of backing down, 
these two common, uneducated men stood there and clearly state the truth of the gospel. They have counted the cost, they have determined its worth, and they speak. And they sound an awful lot like Jesus. And look, you can listen to, to Robbie's message from a few weeks ago, Jesus is Lord, for more about the specific message that they preach and that we now preach. But I do want to point out just two things about this, about their words. One is that it was through the Holy Spirit that they said these things. And we need to listen to the Holy Spirit it says at the beginning, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. So for the third straight time, we see Peter speak boldly. And remember, we talked about something has changed about Peter. This Peter who fought in, in the Gospels, we see him flying off the handle, saying one thing that's true and then one thing that's false, seeing him do all kinds of things. And now we see a different Peter because he has changed, because now the Spirit has dwelled in him. And he no longer is taking stabs in the dark about what he thinks the truth might be. He is now hearing from the Holy Spirit and declaring truth. By a power that is clearly not from him. And we see ordinary people communicating extraordinary truths by extraordinary power. Just like Jesus said would happen in Luke 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. How many times do you think Peter and John reminded each other of that the night before, the night that they spent in prison? Do you see this pattern here? Everything that's happening, they're saying, Jesus said this would happen. We saw this happen to Jesus, and he said this is what's going to happen to us. Do you know how much that builds your faith when we're like trusting God's word instead of just our own view of what we think should happen? It actually affirms it. And then you're like, oh, well, he said this was going to happen. That's super encouraging. So expect that the Holy Spirit will actually speak to you and tell you what to say. Trust him in that. And the other thing is expect that you will have to be clear. Like, do you think Peter feels like, I kind of feel like a broken record at this point. But he says it again. He says, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That's pretty clear. Right? There's no like vague comments about that. There's no like just vagueness about, well, the power of God or by any of the stuff. Like they are saying, look, let's be really clear. Here we go. You're asking again. We're telling you again the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. It's by his name that this man is standing before you well. Listen, we have to expect, if we're going to do these works, if we're going to see God do amazing things, and he's going to build this platform for us to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to expect we are going to have to use words, and we will need to speak clearly. 
And we have a tendency, myself included, to hem and haw and hedge our bets and feel like, oh, I don't want to say it's about this. I don't want to. Let's just take something from this. We need to expect to be clear. And some people will say, I, I, I don't need to talk about my faith. I just show it. Now look, before you go into the other ditch, the point of this is not that all of us get a big stack of gospel tracts and go around and handing them out to everybody and making sure that you do not let that cashier finish ringing up your groceries until you have declared to them the way, the truth, and the life. That is not what we're saying at all. Go back to point one of that. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Obey him. If he says stay quiet, stay quiet. If he says say something, say something. It's pretty easy, right? Yeah, sure. Like, all right, let's just go home. All right? So we have to be like, but we need to expect that we will have the opportunity at some point. And for some of you, because of the way you're wired and because of what God has done in you and through you, you will have a lot of opportunities. For others of you, it will be fewer. That's not the point. The point is, do I expect that I will need to say words and that those words need to be clear? Because if you say, I don't need to talk about my faith, I just show it, I'm going to say, look, showing it is really important critically important by all means but if you don't explain it ever then they don't know what you're showing them they will just worship you or they will just attribute it to whatever their worldview says is the reason why people act in this way i have never ever ever met with someone who has come to faith in christ by saying, like, I, you know what? Well, the reason I came to Christ was I lived next door to this really nice neighbor. And one day when they were shoveling my walk, I thought, huh, that neighbor's really nice. There must be a God who created everything, including me, who I have offended with my sin and now, I'm, and now I'm completely separated from him, and I now need some, some kind of propitiation for my sins, whereby a Savior would come and pay the price for me, so that if I just believe in him, that I would have find life eternal and live for all eternity with this God who is now my Father that I've been reconciled to. Well, you got all that from him shoveling your walk, huh? Yeah, clear as day. Of course not. It doesn't work that way. They go to hell thinking they had a really nice neighbor. Listen, this isn't about thinking we have it all together. It's not about thinking we have the answers to everything. It's not about us being right. It's not about that. It's about this God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him will not perish but find eternal life. And some will scoff at that and we don't get deterred by that, but others will seek and find. And so he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the cornerstone. 
the foundation. We sometimes act like, well, if you have a lot of the pieces around it, eventually we'll get to this whole Jesus thing. That's the foundation. Would you buy a house that looked so beautiful on the outside but was cracked at the core at its foundation? You wouldn't because all that's going to come tumbling down. He is the foundation. Vague spirituality does not save. Better morals do not save. A better community does not save. Claiming a Christian nation does not save. Jesus saves. So be prepared, be expectant, and be excited to be able to credit Jesus that this person that you are talking to might find life. So I see these works and they remind them of Jesus. And these words sound eerily familiar. But even more than that, the way they go about it is eerily familiar. So what I want to point out here, this last point, is this. The thing that will remind people most of Jesus in you is not what you do. It's not even what you say, but it is how you go about all of it. The way in which you do them. Why do I say that? He says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Seeing this man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition, but when they had commanded them to leave the council... They conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see that? Like, what they've done here is very clear to everybody. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So we can't deny what's happened. So let's try to get them to stop speaking. And so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What we see here and in other places and, and what it will continue on is that they respond in a way that is a lot like Jesus. Not just with their words, but their demeanor. Jesus, who remained silent before his accusers, who said things, well, you say that I am. He is not frazzled. He's never rattled by their questions or fooled by their traps. And so we find Peter and John here, ordinary people responding in extraordinary ways. It's the way they go about it. Think, think of, my, my mom used to be fond of, of telling me, um, you are just like your father. And it usually was not a positive thing, just FYI. She loved my dad. I love my dad. Many of you know my dad and, and love my dad. But it was usually in the ways in which he would irritate her. And so, like, if I um, thought I was being funny and she did not think it was funny or 
um, anything like that, and it would be just like, oh, you remind me so much of your father. And some of you have been told that before, or you've said that about your kids, or other people have said that about your children, or maybe about a, a sibling, or about, like, if, you, if you've ever had someone meet your brother or sister and say, like, oh my goodness, like, you guys remind me of each other. What are we saying in that? What is most reminding, like what's most powerful in that reminder? It's not the specific words that are said. It's not always like specific actions that are done. It's more than that. There's a nuance. There's a way in which it happens. It's the way someone carries themselves. It's the the way that they respond to something. It's the little things, right? And that's what's going on here. It's the whole feeling of how they're responding, how they are not rattled, how they're not argumentative, how they're not afraid. They just have this demeanor and no wonder they have the same spirit dwelling in them. It's not just that they annoyed people. It's how they annoyed them. It's not just that they were bold. It's how they were bold. It's not just that they were defiant. It's how they defied. And we often get lost in this and we think like, well, hey, look, Scripture says, you're, like, you, you made the point, you're going to annoy people. I annoy people all the time, so I'm just like Jesus. Eh, maybe not. Or it says we're supposed to be bold, and so this is how I'm going to be bold. I'm going to be bold by my own definition of what boldness looks like, and it looks nothing like how Jesus was bold. Or we're supposed to be defiant and take a stand, and so I'm going to do that. But is it the way Jesus was? Does it remind people? Do people look at that and say, man, that that sounds an awful lot like Jesus? Let's look at that. I love being annoying. I really do. Like, like who's with me? Who kind of enjoys being annoying? Great. Okay. Some of you are definitely going to have to talk to you about honesty and transparency, (laughs) because... If you don't enjoy it, you're awfully good at it. Let me just say that for a few of you. But some of you are like, yes, I kind of like just kind of poking at it, you know, poking the bear or whatever. Like one of my kids, I'm not going to mention any names, Judah, that likes to <laughs> poke a little bit. And when he does that, we get annoyed with him. And what he doesn't always understand is that he's just like his dad. And his mom will say that. Like, eh, who does that remind you of? Like, just like to do it. But there's a good kind of annoying. It's the way that Jesus annoyed people. Like we'll see many times that what is annoying about God's people is that they insist on loving people that others want to marginalize. That they are unable to be bought or intimidated. They don't care about the power structures of the world. They mess up the status quo simply by living and loving like Jesus. They don't go around picking fights or being obnoxious or poking at people or trying to embarrass people. Just their spirit and dwelled presence is disruptive, just like Jesus, who disrupted things because he healed on the Sabbath, because he touched the leper, because he spoke to the Samaritan woman because he could not be intimidated or influenced by promises of power. All very annoying and all very godly. If you want to try disrupting things like Jesus, next time you're surrounded by gossip, speak well of the person who's being slandered. 
When people want to talk about someone else's sin, turn it and talk about your own and your own need for forgiveness. When someone wants to pick a fight and say something horrible to you, respond with kindness and forgiveness. That'll really annoy people. And it will really honor Jesus. It's not smug. Hear me. This is not smug. That would not remind anyone of Jesus. It is humble and soft and kind, but it is relentlessly so. That's the right kind of annoying. And we want to be the right kind of bold. It doesn't come the way the world talks about boldness, of puffing up our chest and showing power. That's what the council's doing. The council's saying, come in, talk to us, and here's all the powerful people all standing in front of you. Our boldness doesn't come in us demanding our own rights or repaying a threat for a threat. It comes from knowing that God is sovereign. Listen, Peter and John, don't look at them when they're arresting them and say, like, you can't do this to us. Do you know who we are? Do you know who we belong to? Their boldness is that they are unshakable. They are fearless. They are unbothered by the intimidation tactics. And it is inexplicable to the world because they were common and uneducated. They had no power How in the world are they not intimidated by my threats? They have no power. They have no standing. Why are they so bold? They had no worldly reason for their boldness. And what we see here is not only was it clear that they had been with Jesus, it was clear that Jesus was with them. And because of that, they are bold. And then they defy in the right way. So when the authorities are trying to figure out what to do, they, they can't deny this miracle has taken place, so they just threaten them. They just result to a threat, like, stop speaking in this name. And Peter and John decline. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. It is, I want you to see just a couple things in this. One, it's not an angry defiance. This is not anger. They don't return a threat for a threat. They're not gonna, they don't say, like, look, you're going to arrest us? Well, you're going to spend your eternity in prison of hell. They could say that. They don't. They don't whine. They don't throw a fit. They don't appeal to their lawyers. They just simply say, you do what you have to do, and we will do what we need to do. But not only is it not an angry defiance, but it's also not a self-serving defiance. They're not being defiant because their rights were violated or because they were asked, they were imprisoned wrongly. They're not, that's not what they're defying. That's not what they're being defiant about. It's about the name of Jesus. They're not being defiant because people are trying to infringe on their freedom of life or because they were asked to wear a mask or told to pay taxes. Listen, right now, I get all kinds of warnings about threats. I get emails and mailers telling me all the time how my religious freedom is being threatened. I mean, seriously, all the time. I'll get, I gotta, I'm going to start saving them just so we can all, usually I just throw them right away, but I, I mean, maybe I'm going to save them so we can see, like, look, the stack of things that are warning me about all the threats to my religious freedom. 
They're going to take away the housing allowance. They're going to make the gospel hate speech. Churches are going to be sued because of their beliefs. We're going to lose our nonprofit status. All the time I get these. And it's hard not to think of Peter and John here being told by a power second only to the Roman government itself to not speak anymore in this name and their response of, eh. And what do they do? They turn the conversation back to Jesus. So they're being threatened with their freedom and Peter and John are saying, my freedom's nothing. I don't care about that. What I care about is the name of Jesus. So if you need to take away my freedom, go for it. But I'm going to continue to declare this name because I don't know what else to do. There's no other name that is worthy. So they're not defiant about the way they are treated. They're saying they can't disobey God, which is just like what Jesus did. Somehow they have become just like him. And they remind everyone of this. They remind everyone of Jesus. And church, at, at some point, we need to fully believe and trust that the way to glorify God on earth is as simple as becoming like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to believe that. I know that sounds simple, and you're like, okay, oh, great. You could have just said at the end, beginning, be like Jesus, go in peace. But the thing is, we know that intellectually, but every time push comes to shove, we find ourselves questioning, is that really the best way? Does that really make the most sense? It is the best way to glorify God. Faithful obedience to him, abiding in him, it is not political influence or cultural morality or anything else. It is that the people of God would be transformed into the image of the Son that we would live and love in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul passionately makes this plea in his famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, which everyone likes to read about just the description of love, but the powerful thing about that passage is the first three verses. When he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he goes on to describe love, but it's the love of Christ that he's talking about. And think about all the things that we have said. Well, I know they don't really exhibit love, but they speak truth. Paul would say, that is nothing. Well, I know they don't really know Jesus, but they do all these really good things for people. They give all this money away. Paul says that is nothing. Well, they are, so, they are really wise, and look at all, but look at all the miracles that happen through them. That is nothing. Not slightly less than, not could be improved, worthless, nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 
love never ends. This is not a generic form of love. This is not just a love that is just an emotion that we feel or that we conjure up in our own mind. It is the love that is given in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead and now is offering forgiveness of sins for eternal life. That is the love and the way of Jesus. And that is what Paul is talking about. Think about who has had the most influence on you in your faith. Picture right now in your mind, who has influenced your faith the most? Who do you look at and think of and say, I want to be like them? Well, Jesus, for sure. Under Jesus, think of a human being. You don't need to say their name out loud. That could get really awkward or embarrassing. But just think for a second. Is it not those who look and live most like Jesus? Displaying the fruit of the Spirit? I've never talked to anyone who said, you know, the person that was so influential to me, they were super influential because they explained why there is evil in the world in like the best way. Or you know what? Is how, how articulately that person spoke about dinosaurs. Or they so eloquently destroyed every other worldview and made everyone look like dummies. Never. It's always the person who loved when it was hard to love, who was humble, non-judgmental, kind, gracious, slow to anger, quick to listen. The one who looks most like Jesus. Let me just ask you this. This is the life that we're going to live, that we do the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus, but in the way of Jesus. What's the potential of that cost? Like, how do we do that in our life, in this world, in this culture? Some of you, I want to give one example here, and I, I want to just preface this. Like, please, please don't be offended. Please don't jump to conclusions. Please don't fall in the other ditch of what I'm saying. Just hear what I'm saying. But some of you have expressed to me that you cannot share the gospel at work because it's not allowed. But what would happen if you prayed for your coworkers? What would happen if someone was healed, if people's lives were changed, and you credited Jesus and shared the gospel on that platform? Imagine getting called into your boss's office and them saying, hey, you need to stop this. Imagine if you respectfully but clearly said, look, I, I respect you and your position, and you do what you need to do, but I have to obey God. And what if they tried to fire you? What would your coworkers say? I'll tell you this. If you'd been acting self-righteously or obnoxiously, if it had been, if your standing for your Christian faith had been about a bumper sticker, about putting a poster up in your cubicle, or about talking about your rights to worship however you want to. Now, they can't tell me that I can't bring my Bible. They can't tell me that I can't do this. And mixed in with those demanding of those rights are all of your rants about other rights that you're losing and that no one can take from you. And about judging people and being condescending about how they spent their weekend or how much more moral you are. Like, if that's your situation, my guess is that your fellow workers will probably cheer at your firing. And I might stand with them. 
because it looks nothing like Jesus. And at that point, you're preaching a false gospel. But if your reputation had been one of a servant, one who had prayed with and for your co-workers, one who loved them in all circumstances, one who forgave quickly those who slandered you, if you'd ministered to people and seen people come to faith and seen them delivered from addictions and seen marriages healed and restored, if you were salt and light in the most Christ-like of ways, what then? If people were praising God because of you, then what? Maybe what we see here. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Can you imagine? More than 40 like that was the second offensive thing that was in this passage. <laughs> Not only were they common and educated, but that dude's over 40. It's near the grave. Listen, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't do anything. All the people were praising God. But even if they did, and they will eventually. But even if they did, even if your boss did say that and everyone was saying, no, don't fire this person and they still fire you for the cause of Christ, I can think of no better reason to be fired. Can you? Like to genuinely say, you know what? I saw people come to Christ. I saw people healed. I told everybody that that miracle they just saw was because of Jesus and they fired me. Awesome. You can move in with me. It's okay, right? Okay. <laughs> Listen, don't worry about those things. There's no playbook. Like, don't get in your mind of like, okay, you're saying I gotta, if I'm a teacher, then I gotta preach the gospel to every single kid that comes into my classroom. That's not what I'm saying. It's not black and white. It's not a textbook. It's about listening to the Holy Spirit, learning to hear his voice and obeying him and not worrying about what you will say in that moment, not worrying about what it will look like, listening to him and obeying him. And if you're a teacher, for example, most often that voice is going to say to you, teach math. Assuming you're a math teacher, teach math. If you're an English teacher, teach English. If you're a PE teacher, make them run. That's what it's going, that's most of the time what's going to happen, but then there's going to come a time. God is going to do something. You're going to pray for somebody and something miraculous is going to be happening and they're going to say, what just happened there? And the Holy Spirit will tell you in that moment, Jesus. And you're not going to worry about what happens because it's going to be so amazing and so clear. This is the life Peter lives throughout Acts. So I'm going to resist pontificating on this passage, I just want you to hear what Peter says. The same Peter that lives this life and is treated in this way, then years later writes this instruction to the church and listen for all the things we just talked about in this passage. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain 
a blessing. And then later, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And he goes on to basically say, because then you are like Jesus. How is that even possible for ordinary people? Because of something extraordinary. Our God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Jesus, we're going to take communion here and be reminded, Jesus lived the life that we were meant to live, died the death that we deserved, and raises from the dead, defeating sin and death in power, the same power that dwells in those who believe. And communion is a reminder of that. It is Jesus saying to the disciples that when you get together, do this in remembrance of me. He is telling them, I am with you when you do this together. There's something powerful that happens when we are together and we remember this corporately. That's why he tells them to do this together as a body. When you're together, do this. Why? Because together we remind one another, this is what Jesus did. This is how we know all these things are true. He lived, he died, he was resurrected. And through that, we have the forgiveness of sins. And so he takes the bread and he breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. Remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. Even as you're thinking about the cross and about how it demonstrates his great love for you. And he raises from the dead, demonstrating the great power that dwells in you and then sends out the disciples. And as we seek forgiveness for how we have failed and sinned, but knowing that it does not change how God loves us and it doesn't change how he loves us, and we know that because of the cross. Because this is my blood, he says shed for you. This seals the covenant and the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Father, we remember what you have done. And we know that when we look at the cross, we see the fulfillment of your work. And all the things, God, as we see him we think of Jesus raised from the dead, we were reminded of the power that dwells in us to do even greater works than you had done on earth. To speak clearly the name of Jesus to all who would hear and have ears to hear. But to be transformed from the inside out 
to not just do the things you call us to do, to not just say the things you call us to say, but to be the people you've called us to be, changed and transformed from the inside out, repaying evil with good, responding to offenses with forgiveness, being bold in the way of Jesus, having the love of Christ dwelling in us richly, let us be those people on display so that we, when we are telling people what you are like, they will see in us what you are like. Make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.